listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Life is about characters engaged in an epic drama, a real life and death battle between the forces of darkness and the forces of God, the forces of goodness. Now, it's not a question of whether or not you are one of those characters. You are. Maybe we see our spouse or family members as being more of a character or in a different sense than what I mean here. Every single one of us is involved in this battle wittingly or unwittingly, voluntarily or involuntarily. It is a matter of which character you are, what role you play in the midst of this epic battle that is raging, where you are a player, like it or not. You didn't ask to be a player, but you're a player nonetheless. You're a character in this drama. You're a character in this battle. The question is, what role are you playing in the drama? How intentional are you in the role that you are playing? Do you understand what role you are playing? Some of us are intentional. Some of us are purposeful, fighting against evil. Others of us might be involved on the other side, whether we know it or not. And so others might not be so sure of what role they play. Look with me at Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 14. In our Father's Word, Luke 16, 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. They ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. See, what's happened here is Jesus has just finished a teaching about money and serving God. He's exposed the mother of all myths that it's possible to be devoted to money and to be devoted to God simultaneously. And we've spent this whole week hopefully reviewing and doing some self-introspection and praying before God and asking Him to reveal to us very clearly where we stand in our own devotion. The mother of all myths is that you can be devoted to money and be devoted to God simultaneously. Jesus says you'll love one and hate the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And he's given that teaching in particular to the disciples who really had to understand this. The disciples really had to understand how much money pulls on you, how much the cares of the world lure you, and the worries of the world draw us and get our attention and our focus away from Jesus because there was no way that they would take the world for Jesus Christ if their interests were divided. 
And that's why that teaching went specifically to the disciples. Because Jesus knew that he was investing into the lives of 12 men, one of whom he knew ahead of time was a traitor. And yet the plan and the purpose, the momentum of the movement of God would not be derailed even by a backstabber in their midst. The plan, the program, the agenda of God depends upon God and his power, not upon man and his power. But Jesus had to help them understand very clearly from the onset. Guys, make up your mind. Don't be double-minded. Don't think that you're going to be able to serve me and you're going to be able to serve your own interests simultaneously. It's not going to happen. So put a nail in that coffin, walk away from it, and don't return. You can't serve God and money. You're going to love one and hate the other. Be devoted to one and, be dis- and despise the other. Jesus knew that in order to take the world, in order to have the kingdom of God advance and go throughout the whole world, it would take men and women, boys and girls, who have made up their mind that they will build the only kingdom that will endure forever, that they will not allow themselves to be enamored and sidetracked and deceived with the here and now. Jesus knew that an eternal attitude, an eternal preoccupation is what is necessary. It is necessary. It is essential. It is part of the spiritual DNA of a follower of Jesus Christ. There is a difference between a follower and a Pharisee. A world of difference. And here we're seeing it play out again. In this drama, this battle between good and evil, between the kingdom of God and all the other kingdoms that are not of God, the kingdom of man, the kingdom of Satan, working hand in glove together. There are many other kingdoms that you and I could choose to build, but only one endures forever. And only a disciple, a real disciple, has an eternal perspective, an eternal preoccupation, and prioritizes everything in their life. And I do mean everything. Everything in their life around the kingdom of God, the advancement of the kingdom of God as an overflow of real worship. A disciple is to be a worshiper at heart, a worshiper at mind, where, yes, everything revolves around what you're worshiping, and otherwise it's idolatry. That's what has just taken place here. When we look, by the time we get to Luke 16, 14, we see that some others have heard. They've been within earshot of this teaching, this targeted teaching for the disciples, and they are the Pharisees. They heard this. Look with me at verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money. See, Jesus' teaching cut to the heart. Jesus doesn't just step on our toes. He crushes our toes. Jesus doesn't teach in such a way that it's not sure what you're, you're not sure what he said. What did Jesus just say? I'm not sure. What does Jesus want me to do? I'm not sure. No, when Jesus teaches, you know what he's saying and you know what to do. It's then a matter of 
What kind of character we have as a character? Will we align ourselves with the teaching of God or will we kick against the goats? The Pharisees heard this. They were lovers of money. And so the problem is obvious. It's obvious not only in the teaching itself, but it becomes obvious in the countenance on their face. Look what it says here. They were lovers of money. They heard all these things and they ridiculed him. I do like what the New International Version says here. It says that they sneered at him. They sneered at him. See it in their faces. Would you stop? Do you understand? We're listening to what you're saying too. We don't like what you're saying. How can we do what we're trying to do? You're invading our space. You're making it uncomfortable for us. They ridiculed him. They sneered at him. Jesus, understanding that he upset them, look at verse 15. Jesus, understanding he upset them, took his foot off the accelerator and began to apologize. I'm sorry, fellas. I should have included you in the kingdom plan and agenda of God. I know that my teachings are hard, and maybe they've been a bit too hard. I know that I've stretched you to the limit and you feel like your toes are stepped on. Please forgive me. You see, because I'm interested in getting accolades from you. I'm interested in your opinion of me. And I realize that these hard teachings are going to cause you to think less of me. And if you think less of me, then by the way, how can I establish my kingdom on earth if the Pharisees, the leaders of the religious people, don't think highly of me? So fellows, please forgive me. In fact, this whole time, this year and a half that I've been teaching, and I know I've had a couple of meals at your houses, and I know that I haven't been actually polite to you and respected you, and I know that I haven't involved myself in the practices that you've considered to be so important, putting your own teachings on equal footing with the teaching of the law and the Old Testament. I know I haven't washed my hands certain times after being out and shaking all the hands of all these people. And I know that I've been ceremonially unclean according to your definition. And I know that I've given teachings that have rocked the boat. I'm just so sorry because I know that it's leadership 101 that if I don't have popularity, I don't have momentum. So I must have been out of my mind. Forgive me. Forgive me, guys, I'm really sorry that I have violated Leadership 101 by not endearing myself to you and not becoming more popular because after all, I'm trying to establish the kingdom of God on earth and that requires buy-in. So please forgive me. That's the reversed standard version. Jesus puts the pedal to the metal. Verse 15, he said to them, you're those who justify yourselves before men. Can you feel the dagger going into their hearts? But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Do you know that the things that you might value that might be important to you that are in contrast to the Word of God are not just an annoyance to God. They're not just in conflict with God. They are an abomination, one of the strongest words that could possibly be used. Look with me at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this is a tie-in with the book of Daniel, chapter 11 and chapter 12. 
something called the abomination that causes desolation. Antiochus Epiphanes did this. He offered a pig on the altar in the temple. He offered a pig, which would be the biggest slap in the face you could do, not just to the Jewish people, but in an attempt to flagrantly thumb your nose at God, offering a pig on the altar of sacrifice, the abomination that causes desolation. Well, there's another one that's coming that will involve the Antichrist in the last days, and here we read about it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that that day, the day of the Lord, has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Don't think that just because somebody is an eloquent speaker that that makes them, just because they're charismatic, that that makes them somebody who you should follow. Counterfeit signs and wonders will accompany the Antichrist so that the whole world will want to bow down and worship him. Setting himself up in the temple itself, an abomination, something that none of us would look at favorably. We would say, how could somebody do that? Such a flagrant, in the face of God, idolatrous behavior. And that's exactly what it is. It's an abomination that causes a desolation, a desolation of all that is sacred, truly, all that is holy, all that is true. That's what's coming on the horizon with the Antichrist. We've seen it from the Word of God in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But you know, there is another abomination that you and I can be engaged in in the course of our day. If we're not careful, in the course of our lives, if we're not careful, and the Pharisees were experts at it. They were not only experts in the law, but they were tremendously deficient in paying attention to the movement of the Spirit of God. These guys were experts at inserting themselves, superimposing themselves over and above the teachings of the Old Testament. 
trying to insert themselves as the leaders to be followed instead of Jesus, who they should have been following and who they should have been encouraging everyone else to follow, the Pharisees inserting themselves. See, there's two ways to look at this in verse 16. It's almost like a parenthetical statement. The law and the prophets in Luke 16, verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Jesus is not necessarily making a positive statement there. Everyone forces his way into it. You Pharisees, you want to be the center of attention. You Pharisees, you want your teachings to be the center of attention. You Pharisees see your own teachings as being diametrically opposed to my teachings because they are. Everybody wants a piece of the action. Everybody wants to make themselves the center of attention. And Jesus says, what is highly valued by man is an abomination in the sight of God. And these Pharisees didn't even understand what they were doing. They were so blind and so hard-hearted. Remember, these are the ones who committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, who committed the unforgivable sin to say that Jesus did the works that he did through the power of Satan. That's how hard-hearted they were. That's how resistant they were. They were the leaders of the nation of Israel. They should have been recognizing the Messiah, and instead of recognizing him, they were sneering at him. And so God knew their hearts. He knew. And what man esteems, what did man esteem? What did the Pharisees esteem? Self-righteousness, justifying yourself as if that can be done. Involving yourself in works, religious activity, as if God is impressed with your good behavior and my good behavior. Listen, if you could justify yourself, if you could cleanse yourself before God, then the death of Jesus on the cross would be completely in vain. If you could justify yourself before God and make yourself righteous before God, if the Pharisees could have done that by adhering to the law, the Old Testament, then first of all, why did they add to the law by putting their interpretations on top of it? And second of all, again, if observing the Old Testament was sufficient and if somebody could observe the Old Testament flawlessly, and that would make them right before God, just before God, pure before God, then again, Christ died for nothing. See, there seems to be two possible interpretations, and the the commentators really struggle over this section here. They scratch their heads and they say, we're not quite sure exactly what this means. In verse 16, everyone forces his way into it. You might have a footnote that says, everyone is forcefully urged into it. The law and the prophets were until John. John is the character in the drama who makes the distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it or everyone is forcefully urged into it. And then Jesus says, he culminates with the word, but. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Two possible interpretations here, one of which is 
People are inserting themselves, trying to get a piece of the action. The Pharisees are those characters acting ridiculously, trying to insert themselves over and above the teaching of Jesus, over and above the importance of Jesus, forcefully to the point of sneering at him, to the point of publicly opposing him, knowing that their turf is being invaded, knowing that their influence is being diminished, knowing that the kingdom of God is coming and yet not recognizing that it's the kingdom of God. Hypocrites. Jesus called them elsewhere whitewashed tombs, unclean in the truest sense of who they are, and yet outwardly looking flawless and perfect. The abomination that the Pharisees committed is that they were saying that you could be just by observing the law. You could make yourself righteous. They began to perceive themselves as righteous because of the things that they did. And the whole message of the gospel, the reason why it's good news, the reason why the gospel is great news, is because while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. There is nothing that you can do to remove all of your sin, even if from this moment on, by some miraculous means, you never sinned again in what you thought. You never sinned again by neglecting the things that you should do and you should think. Even that would not be good enough because up to this point, you've already done things you shouldn't have done. You've already thought things you shouldn't have thought. You've already neglected to do the things that you should do. Sins of commission and sins of omission. Somebody's got to take those away. And your good behavior, as good as it might be, my good behavior, as good as it might be, is relative to the goodness and the flawlessness, the perfectness, the holiness of God. And in light of God's standard, there is nothing that you and I could do, there's nothing the whole human race together could do, combined, that would compensate for the sin in our lives. If we could observe the Old Testament, if it was enough to observe the Old Testament to have our sins removed, then why would God send his one-of-a-kind, uniquely brought forth son into the world to be ridiculed, persecuted, flogged to the point of being beyond recognition, and then hang on a cross? All of that would be in vain. Don't you think God in his sovereignty would have reminded us, just follow the law, just be a good person, try a little harder. No, the law helps us understand that the harder you try, the harder I try, the more we become conscious of sin. The more we realize how far we fall short of the glory of God. You were helpless and hopeless apart from the enablement of God to come in and invade your space and extend to you this undeserved favor, the grace of God, that even though you don't deserve it and even though I don't deserve it, it's not about deserving it. It's not about deserving it. None of us deserve anything. It's about the love of God. And about God reaching out and doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And yet here we have the Pharisees who just don't seem to get it. They're forcing their way on to Jesus. Not giving up easily. 
their place of prominence. Still holding on to justification through works. Not understanding the idea of faith being the number one and the only. The number one and the only means through which God justifies a person, sanctifies a person, removes our sin, gives us a new legal position before God. Do you know that before you've given your life to Jesus Christ in faith, you're an opponent of God? The Bible says all of your works are like filthy rags in the book of Isaiah, and the imagery there does not really get driven home because it has to deal with a woman. That's what's clearly laid out in the book of Isaiah. When it says all people's works are like filthy rags, I'm keeping it PG, G-rated here. The imagery there is of a woman. And so, you see, we don't even understand how our quote-unquote good works, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, are viewed by God. And that's what needs to happen. We need God's perspective because ours falls far short. Are we beginning to understand and get the picture here? And so what man highly esteems is completely detestable to God. We very rarely, except by the grace of God, understand things from God's perspective. We don't understand the depths of our fall. We don't understand the depths of our sin. We don't understand the totality of our death, the totality of our depravity, that in us no good thing dwells. It is only by the undeserved favor of God that he's kind to us, that he extends his goodness to us, and he makes us alive even though we were dead in our sin and separate from him. The next time you don't believe that God loves you, the next time you don't really believe that God values you, you need to understand and consider that Jesus died for you and he died for me so that he could have relationship with you. And if you weren't worthless, he wouldn't have done it. If you were not valuable, why bother? Could have left us wallowing in the mud. The great news is that while you were a sinner and while I was a sinner, Christ died for us so that the dividing wall of hostility, the separateness between you and God, me and God, would be removed instantaneously the moment of saving faith in Jesus Christ that's how much God, he loves you. You don't understand how much he loves you. You just don't understand it. We don't comprehend the love of God that surpasses human intellectual insight. But we begin to understand it as we take the words of Jesus seriously and we take them to heart. The fuses begin to blow, the light bulbs begin to go on, and then we begin to run to God because we realize, really, God, me, while I was still a sinner, with all my garbage and all my baggage and all my weaknesses and all my tendencies that don't seem to go away very easily, don't lose heart. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You're a masterpiece in the making, God's masterpiece. 
and you're valuable before him, so much so that even though he knows your works will not justify you, even though he knows your quote-unquote good deeds are not good enough, he would do it for you so that he could display through you the wonders of his kindness, the wonders of his goodness. For God so loved the world, and you're in the world, that he gave his one-of-a-kind, uniquely brought forth son, that whoever believes in him would not go into an eternity as separated from him, would not right here and right now in this life, miss out on intimacy with him, but have everlasting eternal life. That's the love of God. And these Pharisees were an abomination because they were resisting all of that. They were thinking that there was something that they could do that would cause God to look favorably upon them. They missed being teachers of the law, memorizing the law, representing the nation of Israel and representing God. They were failing royally, and it was an abomination. And anytime you and I try to add something to the gospel, add something to simple faith, that's what takes away your sin, faith in Jesus, it's an abomination. It's not something to be taken lightly, and it's actually not the Pharisees who were sneering at Jesus that should be the focus here. It is God sneering at the Pharisees because of their abomination. Be very careful and be very aware. Everything that's happening in your life is either drawing your focus and the focus of other people toward the grace of God and salvation that's undeserved and the favor of God and faith of God, or it's something being added to that. It's faith plus your behavior that makes God look favorably upon you. It's education and Bible knowledge and your title after your name or the title before your name. All of that's an abomination. And the Pharisees are inserting themselves forcefully in trying to invade the space of God. But you know how Jesus ends it in verse 17? It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. The idea here, it's similar to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, where he talks about a jot or a tittle. The smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, a jot. Almost looks like a apostrophe. And Jesus says, not even the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, not even the smallest letter in the Aramaic alphabet or the Greek alphabet will be reduced from the Old Testament. And then on top of that, think of in the English language, a lowercase i or a lowercase j. You need to have the dot to make it complete. That's a tittle. In the Aramaic or the Hebrew language, if you don't insert that, the meaning of a word, the meaning of a letter can be entirely changed. And in the English, if you stop dotting your I's and dotting your J's, maybe crossing your T's. People would look at what you're writing and saying, why, this does not make as much sense to me. And Jesus says, not only will not the smallest letter be removed from the Old Testament and God's word, but, not, but also even strokes that make up those letters cannot be removed. And so Jesus is putting the Pharisees in their place and helping them understand you can do all you want. You can insert yourself all you want. You can forcefully try to oppose me and try to change 
what cannot and will not ever be changed because heaven and earth will pass away sooner and easily easier think of how difficult that is before my word will pass away and the idea is that God's word will never pass away, cannot be adulterated, even though people are forcefully inserting themselves, creating doctrinal heresy, trying to add to simple faith in Jesus Christ, trying to add to the idea of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ being the culmination of God's plan of salvation. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. People are forcefully then, forcefully today, trying to make a name for themselves adulterating and perverting the true word of God and salvation that comes only by faith. But Jesus says, it doesn't bother me at all. Because at the end of it all, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, the other possible interpretation here is one of people clamoring for Jesus, people forcefully trying to get close to Jesus. And this is one of the things that really has to be driven home for us because we've substituted the institutionalized church. Listen to me. We've substituted the institutionalized church for the movement of the Spirit of God that it's supposed to be. The movement of the Spirit of God. That's what the church is. It's a movement of God. It's the kingdom of God on earth. And every institutionalized church is only as good. Every institutional church is only as good as her understanding, the understanding of the leaders of that church, understanding that it's supposed to be a movement of the Spirit of God. And the other interpretation here is that people are forcefully trying to get into the kingdom of God because they realize the Savior has appeared and they realize that God is now with his people, Emmanuel, God with us. And there are multiple examples, dozens of examples, just in Luke's gospel. Look with me at Luke's gospel alone. We'll look at some of the response of the Pharisees. We'll look at some of the response of the people. This is up to chapter 16. Look with me. Beginning in chapter 4. Verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all of the surrounding country. Word gets out. Luke 4, 32, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority, different than the teachers of the day. Luke 4, 37, and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Luke 4, 42, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Luke 5, 1, on one occasion, while the crowds was, were, was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, see the crowd, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Luke 5, 9, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish, all that were with him, that they had taken. Luke 5, 15, but now even more. The report about him went abroad and great crowds, large-sized crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, 
They went up on the roof and led him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. And look at that. People forcefully trying to get in close to Jesus, trying to get into the kingdom of heaven. And when, Luke 5, 26, and amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Luke 5.30, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See these characters? They're not getting it. Other people are getting it, forcefully trying to get into the kingdom of God. And these guys are forcefully opposing Jesus. Luke 6.17, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Luke 6, 19, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Luke 7, 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith, speaking of the centurion. Luke 7, 11, soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Luke 8, 4, and when a great crowd was gathered and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, Luke eight forty. now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting on him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. In other words, how do we know who touched you? But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke of them, of the kingdom of God, and cured those in need of healing. Luke 9, 10, and 11. Notice the crowds. On the next day, when they had come, to get, come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Luke 9, 37. Luke 9, 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, what is that? What's up with that? What is up with that? See how the Bible's not sanitized? It just presents us its warts and all. The disciples are arguing who's greatest among them. And don't watch the crowds. Come on, guys. Let's get with the program. Luke eleven twenty seven. He said that he said these things. A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which nursed you. Look at the crowd again. Luke eleven twenty nine. When the crowds were increasing. See, the crowds were increasing. I thought we already had crowds. No, we've got a move of God. You think you've seen crowds so far? This is nothing. It's just beginning. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Luke 12, 1, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, that's how big the crowd is, the original mosh pit, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
Luke 12, 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Another guy who doesn't get it. Luke 12, 54, he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. In other words, don't you see what's happening in front of you? The kingdom of God has come. Some of these people are forcefully trying to enter in. The crowds are growing. Look at verse Luke 14, 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear them. Luke 15, 1 and 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. That's the whole point. Time after time after time. When we read the Bible, we see that our life in 21st century America is so much different. What we've made church to be is so much different than what God intended it to be. What we've settled for is so far below what God desires, so far below the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that it's almost like we're living in a bizarro world how quick we are to add things like the Pharisees did to the death of Jesus. How quick we are to change things, although Jesus says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot to be changed from the Word of God. There are people clamoring for Jesus, forcefully doing whatever it takes destroying a roof to let a man who's paralyzed down in front of him. We see the characters very clearly. We see the Pharisees who are opposing and sneering, trying to add things, and we see the crowds. We see the characters in this drama, do we not? We see this epic battle between the forces of darkness and the forces of good. Some of us see our role very clearly. Others of us need clarity, but make no mistake about it. The kingdom of God is advancing, and God wants you to be among those who are clamoring for Jesus, drawing near to Jesus, walking by faith, living by faith, not adding to the message of the gospel, but walking with Jesus. That's what this movement of the Spirit of God is all about, and you can be part of it if you want. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm-hmm.